Hi, uh, this is Larry Bernstein. Welcome to What Happens Next, Week 8. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, my mom is on the line. Mom, I love you, and thanks for listening to the show. For the rest of you, this is a reminder to call your mom, but only after the show is finished. On Friday, mo- on Friday morning, two days ago, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released its monthly payroll numbers. It showed the largest decline in employment since the data has been collected in, since 1948. 22 million Americans lost their job this month. In January, this would have been absolutely inconceivable. No one would have thought this would have been possible. I encourage you to download the employment report from the BOS website to check out some of the statistics. I have read this monthly report religiously for the past 26 years because it is the most important economic information we get. The first thing I thought was interesting was that the unemployment rate jumped from 4.4% to 14.7%. It went up by 10% for whites, blacks, and Asian Americans, and by 13% for Hispanics, from 6% to 19%. I suspect it was probably worse for the Hispanic population because they are proportionally more employed in industries like hospitality, which was harder hit. The employment performance varied enormously by industry. For example, the finance and insurance sector had a trivial decline in employment. Federal government employment actually increased on the month. Remember, the average industry had a decline of employment of 10%. Leisure and hospitality employment fell by 7.7 million people, or a 47% decline in employment. The retail trade declined by 2.1 million, or by 14%. Furniture and retail home furnishings declined by 210,000, or 44%. Today we will hear from Bob Marisich, who is Chairman and CEO of International Market Centers, who will discuss the future of the furniture business. Arts, entertainment, and recreation employment fell by more than 50%. Museums saw employment drop by around 25%. We will have Madeline Grinstein from the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago speak about what is happening at one of the leading art museums in the world. During the worst healthcare pandemic of modern time, employment in the healthcare industry declined by 10% this month. Dr. Steve Falk will discuss the future of elective care with emphasis on beauty. Construction employment declined by 13%, but just as employment by industry varies, so does employment within an industry. Last week, we heard from Steve Alloy, who is the CEO of one of the largest home builders in the Mid-Atlantic states, and he said his business is doing great. Today, we'll hear from Tim Schoen, who is CEO of Biomed, and he will compare real estate construction for firms in the life science industry, and he'll compare it to other industries that are not doing well. After the Friday morning announcement of 22 million job losses, the stock market rallied on Friday by 1.5%, and the S&P 500 is now down just 9% on the year. The market is clearly expecting the economy to open up sooner rather than later. We have some incredible speakers on this call from academia, industry, medicine, and the arts, so sit back and enjoy the show. The Chatham House rules apply for this call. We do this because we want the speakers to be as open as possible so we can learn, from, learn more without putting the speaker at risk. The format of this call will be the same as the previous seven weeks. Each speaker will be only given six minutes. At the five-minute point, I may throw a question or two, and then we're off to the next speaker. I think the format is both fun and incredibly informative. 
After all the speakers have spoken, there will be a general question and answer period. This call is being recorded. Let's go with our first speaker. I met the first speaker, Ofer Levy, um, about 30 years ago. Uh, his wife uh, lived down the hall at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Ofer is a physician and scientist and runs the Precision Vaccines Program at Boston Children's Hospital, and he is professor of pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School. Ofer, teach us about vaccines. Okay, thank you for that, uh, Larry. I think uh, what I will say is that other than the uh, hand hygiene and social distancing measures, uh, one of the most in important interventions, but one that we don't yet have at hand, is the development of a safe and effective and scalable vaccine uh, to protect against coronavirus. Um, you may have noted, and, and your listeners may have noted, that we circulated some slides, and for those of you who are at your computer, uh, please do uh, feel free to open them. Uh, I think what would be interesting would be to briefly describe to you uh, three broad areas the Precision Vaccines Program is pursuing in an effort to develop therapeutics and vaccines against coronavirus, and those will be illustrative. So our first major project is an observational study of 1,000 to 2,000 adult Americans across the United States infected with coronavirus who will be followed uh, in hospital and through discharge and convalescence, hopefully, uh, for up to a year. Not only will we be collecting uh, a lot of clinical information about these individuals, including their background, their predisposing factors, et cetera, but we will also be obtaining biosamples, blood, uh, respiratory secretions and others at up to 10 time points over one year and subjecting these to very cutting edge assays that are able to measure all the cells and molecules in a sample. This big data approach will be integrated with clinical outcomes such as who had a relatively light course, maybe was in the hospital for a day or two and went home, and who had a severe course and unfortunately was in the ICU or even, God forbid, died. And those comparisons will teach us about how the human immune system interacts with the virus, uh, shedding new light into a virus we're just getting to know, and giving us clues as to how to develop novel diagnostics, prognostics, therapeutics, and vaccines. This study is funded by the National Institutes of Health by Tony Fauci, uh, and it's a named immunophenotyping assessment in a COVID cohort, or IMPACT. Uh, that's in slide number two. And slide number three is a map of the U.S. and the 10 centers across the country participating in this, including here at Harvard Medical School, at Boston Children's Hospital, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, slide four illustrates the approach of our precision vaccines program in developing new vaccines. Uh, it often starts with a clinical study such as the one I just described, extracting big data information and correlating that with something we care about clinically, like outcome, and then using those signatures, those cellular and molecular signatures, to inform discovery and development of new vaccines uh, that may need to be population-specific. The immune response can vary with age, with sex. As we know, the elderly do worst with uh, COVID. And therefore, uh, our second major project is to develop a vaccine against coronavirus that's especially targeted for elderly individuals. And we're developing it in a very unusual way. Usually, vaccine development will disregard uh, demographic features like age or sex and assume that everybody would respond equally to a vaccine. We turn vaccine development on its head. We have blood donations from elderly individuals who want to support the effort, and we test their blood outside the body to see which molecules best turn on an elderly immune response. These are called adjuvants. 
Uh, they're like rocket fuel that enhance an immune response. You add them to vaccines to boost a response. This may also help scale a solution when you need to eventually make billions of doses. So we've discovered molecules that work well to uh, activate a human elderly response outside the body, and those molecules are now advancing into rodent models and beyond to build coronavirus vaccines that uh, may best protect those who are most vulnerable, the elderly. The third and final large-scale project in our group is to repurpose an old vaccine that may cross-protect unexpectedly against coronavirus. I'm alluding to a 100-year-old tuberculosis vaccine some of your listeners may have heard about called Bacille Calmet-Guerin, invented in Paris in the 1920s. BCG is given around the world to prevent tuberculosis, uh, but it turns out that live vaccines such as BCG may enhance broadly your immune system and cross-protect against viruses. A number of countries now are testing that in randomized clinical trials. And on slides eight and nine, which are the final slides in my presentation, I highlight our efforts to stand up phase two clinical trials in vulnerable healthcare workers and elderly individuals in nursing homes comparing placebo against BCG vaccine for their ability to enhance broad antiviral immunity and reduce COVID infection and severity. So those are our three big picture approaches. And on the final slide, slide 10, is uh, my name, my email address, and our Twitter handle is at PrecVaccines, at P-R-E-C Vaccines, V-A-C-C-I-N-E-S. If anybody would like to learn more about our program or support it, we'd love to hear from them. Great. Um, quick question for you. Um, we've heard that the viral load exposure matters. Um, does that mean that, um, what does that really mean in terms of the vaccine itself? Do you think it matters how much vaccine we give different people to get different sort of antibodies response? And I've also heard that uh, just because you get antibodies, it doesn't mean you can't get the virus again or uh, get it in different degrees. How, are we, how does this all work together in the context of the vaccine? Thank you. Well, first of all, for any infectious disease, there's something called the Theobald-Smith equation, which basically says the severity of a disease in any one of us is proportional to the number of infecting organisms, the strain that you're infected with, and inversely proportional to the host resistance. Uh, so when you're elderly, your resistance reduces and therefore disease gets worse. And similarly, Larry, as you were alluding to, the more coronavirus particles infected you at a given point in time, the more likely you will have severe disease. And that's where the social distancing comes into play and the hand washing and all the rest of it. In terms of the vaccine, again, we're very focused on the host side. Elderly immune system is different and to put it simply weaker. So we're trying to build a vaccine that will work well in the elderly from the get-go. Our vaccine might not be the first on the market, but it might be the one that uh, is most protective for those who most need our protection. You mean the elderly? Exactly. And, and we've seen it with influenza vaccine, right? Uh, the elderly don't, offer, don't always give a, a, a sufficient response to the flu vaccine. Sometimes they need a higher dose vaccine, and even men are not fully protected. And then you got to the point that it's not just inducing antibodies, but what kind of antibodies. For some infections, if you induce the wrong kind of antibodies, you actually make infection worse. This happened with dengue. There was a vaccine called Dengvaxia, and there was a recent disaster in the Philippines where the vaccine actually worsened disease. 
There is a real tension here between wanting to move quickly and scale a vaccine rapidly. It'll be a happy day when we have a safe and effective vaccine. However, there's a tension between that speed and the need for safety, and God forbid, not scaling a vaccine that takes on a risk of inducing the wrong kind of antibody and worsening disease. So we are in a real pickle here, but we have many shots on goal, many different vaccine approaches, and I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic, that in the coming months, we're going to be seeing some exciting results on the vaccine front, and then, the sa- then uh, follows the safety assessment, and how rapidly can it be scaled? Last question. Um, we've been working on an HIV vaccine for 40 years. We haven't got one. Uh, is there a risk we won't get one for this? There is a risk, but it's a very different virus than HIV. HIV is a particularly uh, difficult case and a different kind of case. Thankfully, this does not appear to be quite as complex as that with a deep reservoir. You know, HIV creates these reservoirs in your body. They're very hard to eliminate. It's a, HIV is a very different kind of beast. Uh, there is a, I, I'm optimistic we're going to have some good vaccines uh, uh, in the coming months to, to really try to scale. Uh, however, there is a risk that we get unlucky and the first few initially look good, but when we scale them, we run into problems either around on the production and safety. You really don't know safety until you really involve a lot of individuals and then you might pick up a safety signal. So we can get unlucky on that front, which is why it's good that we will have multiple shots on goal. It might not be the first vaccine that's the ultimately the last vaccine we use. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Madeline Grinstein. She is the Prinsker Director of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Uh, Madeline is a very close personal friend, and my wife is on her board. Go ahead, Madeline. Thank you, Larry. I think all of us know how valuable museums are to our culture, our lives, and our communities. Beyond that cultural impact, the museum sector also exerts a powerful economic force. The museum sector includes botanic gardens, children's museums, planetariums, science centers, zoos, aquariums, as well as visual arts museums like mine that in total welcome over 850 million visitors across the country each year. Altogether, the sector annually contributes more than $50 billion to the GDP, plus $12 billion in taxes. The museum sector provides over 725,000 jobs, which is more than double that of the professional sports industry, for example. So that's a considerable economic footprint and the context within which to talk about the impact of COVID-19. The Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, or MCA, which I direct, along with most of the museum sector, closed down on March 13th. And for the past nine weeks, our work has been driven by three principles, to protect our staff and public safety, to keep our public engaged, and to ensure the organization remains sustainable. Now, as we all start to move towards reopening the economy and museums along with, the MCA is working off of two new principles, or let's call them mantras, that I believe resonate with many other museums. The first mantra is this. The museum we closed will not be the same one that we will open, not programmatically, not operationally, not circumstantially. Our financial models will completely change due to severely depressed earned revenue and the need to find other sources of income. Our attendance, which is normally 50% tourists, will be reduced and become hyper-local and regional in profile. And our facilities and visitor experience will be overhauled for a socially distanced experience when museums have been laser-focused on the very opposite, which is deep visitor interaction. 
The second mantra comes in the form of a question that we imagine our community will ask of us, which is, what did you, museum, do during this crisis to serve this community, and what will you be doing? Which brings me to how COVID-19 will impact the future of museums, and I would like to posit four outcomes going forward. One, the online museum is here to stay. To stay engaged with our public under COVID, many museums established a fulsome digital platform to where we are building digital institutions with standalone offerings that differ from our brick and mortar facilities. And these digital gains will endure and expand. Two, goodbye to the Blockbuster exhibition. We love Blockbusters for their transformative art experience and their financial advantage but they are not going to happen for a while given the difficulty in gathering a multitude of loans internationally, the increased costs of transport and insurance and the lack of attendance to justify the investment. On the positive, this means that our collections will become increasingly important and the resources we normally commit to blockbusters can pivot towards our great collections. Here's another thing that'll happen. Blockbusters crowd out other stories that are hugely valuable to our culture, and it's those new perspectives that will drive the future. That commitment to the emerging artist and idea is a long-time sweet spot for contemporary art museums like mine that can now be elevated. Okay, number three, museums must double down on being gathering spaces. Now, this may sound absurd given that we're facing a virus that makes sociality a material threat but it is essential. Many museums are about gathering people together to experience art. So we must think about how to gather differently once we reopen with social distancing in place. A silver lining of this terrible crisis is that it has shown us how people can come together. Our exciting challenge as museums and as a society is to lock in that social fabric. This is all the more important because of how the pandemic can be used as cover for xenophobia, racism, and so on. The job of a museum as a public sphere is to actively push against these tendencies and make social connection or social belonging a core value. And in fact, art has a unique ability to connect people across time and place. Four and last, revive the WPA model. Now, this is more a hope than a prediction. So let me begin by saying that the economic shutdown has hit artists particularly hard. Galleries that would be selling their works are closed and museums are laying off the kinds of freelance jobs that artists depend on, all as a nation's unemployment rate has risen to Great Depression era levels. I bring up the Great Depression because FDR's New Deal provides a template for how we can address the damage being done to the art community by COVID-19. Under the New Deal, the Works Progress Administration, or WPA, put some 1,000 artists to work across 800 cities where they created murals, sculptures, posters, stage sets, and taught art courses. Now, the immediate effect was to keep artists employed, but the New Deal changed the course of art history. Some of our greatest photographers came out of the WPA, WPA artists like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko went on to invent art movements and so on. Now today we are again experiencing an extreme crisis and a highly precarious time for artists. 
where a 21st century WPA is urgently needed. This can be a public-private enterprise, not exclusively a government model. And in fact, at the MCA, we're not going to wait for this nationwide need. We're going to instigate it by beginning the project ourselves. We're going to commission new works by Chicago artists that we plan to exhibit this fall. Artists have always shown us the way out of a dilemma, and they will be the first to articulate how we live in a post-COVID world. So let's get them to work. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Madeline. Our next speaker is Angela Duckworth. Uh, Angela joins us from University of Pennsylvania, where uh, is my alma mater, where she is a professor of psychology, and she was named a MacArthur genius. Uh, I love her book, Grit. Angela, take it away. Thank you, Larry. Uh, Your first question for me was, does having grit help me get through a crisis relatively unscathed? My view is that nobody's coming out of this crisis the way we went into it. But the short answer is, yeah, I think grit helps during times like these. But as you know, Larry, I define grit as passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And so the longer answer is this. Perseverance is an unequivocal advantage right now, but passion could be an asset or a liability depending on how you manage it. I'll explain by reading you a few items from a new grit scale. It's actually still unpublished, but I think it captures better what I mean by grit than the original questionnaire I developed at the start of my research. I'm going to read you a few items from this new scale, and while you listen, I'm going to encourage you to consider how much each statement is true of you and whether this tendency may be helpful in a crisis like the one we're experiencing right now. Here are four items uh, on the grit scale, the new one, about perseverance. Number one, I'm doggedly persistent. Two, I never stop working to improve. Three, I've overcome setbacks to conquer an important challenge. Four, I bounce back from failure more quickly than most people. I think it's obvious just listening to these four items that dogged resilience, perseverance, in the face of setbacks is an advantage now more than ever. And given the disruptions to the economy, business as usual, health, I also think the inclination to strive relentlessly to improve has got to help. But now let me read you a few of the passion items. It's less obvious, I think, that these are central to thriving during a pandemic. Number one, I'm working towards a very specific and long-term goal. Two, I enjoy projects that require years to complete. Three, the interest I take in my work borders on obsession. Four, my work is central to my identity. That is, what I do is an important part of who I am. And five, I'm so interested in my work, it seems like everything I see, hear, or do relates back to it. I think a lot of people who truly love what they do, who have passion for what they do, they're actually suffering the most right now because circumstances are preventing them from working, including the artists that were just described. Chefs, professional athletes, artists, they may be obvious examples, but I'm sure you can think of many others. My guess is, in fact, that there are a lot of very gritty people listening to this call right now who are incredibly frustrated for those reasons. And perhaps the more interesting question then is what you do with all your perseverance and your passion, but you can't do what you were doing in February. And my advice from psychological science is to reflect on the ultimate purpose of your work. I sometimes call this a top-level goal, but you can also think of it as a personal mission statement. The trick is to be stubborn about that higher-level purpose, but to be flexible about how you achieve it. And I think the last call illustrated this. For example, if you're a chef, your purpose might be show love through food. So maybe you reconfigure your restaurant to do takeout, or maybe those economics don't make any sense. So you start doing videos from your home kitchen like Tom Colicchio, or 
like Gabrielle Hamilton of Prune in New York City, you, you do more food writing. Or like Josh Kim, who owns Spot Burgers here in Philadelphia, you take your ground beef and your potatoes from your walk-in refrigerator and you start feeding families in your neighborhood for free. You can check out the note he has at the headline of his restaurant website. It says, if you have small children and need help, please stop by for a meal. If you lost your job due to the current pandemic, please come by and let me feed you. As God has granted me much grace, I still champion my brothers and sisters in their time of need. I'll be briefer on your second and third question, Larry. The second one was, can I work on improving my grit or am I born with it? The answer is both. Pretty much everything that makes you an individual, your character included, is influenced by genes, but also by experience. Since I can't give you a full lecture on behavioral genetics, I'll just say that a lot of parents are, I'm sure, listening right now. You already gave your kids your genes. Now your job is to provide the experiences. And that includes being a role model and providing challenge along with unconditional support. And your last question for me, Larry, was, do you think that a strong psychological makeup will have a difference when I catch the virus? To this question, I have to say I don't know, because grit is a relatively young scientific literature. I'm going to instead expand this question to address related psychological traits and their relationship to physical health. Three lines of evidence suggest a cautious yes that your psychological makeup does have an impact on your physical health, even in times like these. First, grit belongs to a larger family of personality traits called conscientiousness. And there is very solid evidence that life expectancy is positively predicted by traits in this psychological family, including self-control, dependability, the tendency to make plans, follow rules, etc. Second, I found in my research with Marty Seligman, also at Penn, that gritty people, for example, tend to be optimists. And optimists are those people who look for the aspects of a situation that they can change rather than dwell pessimistically on all the things they're helpless to change. A recently published comprehensive meta-analysis concluded that optimists live longer than pessimists, not just because they're less likely to suffer from cardiovascular disease, which is quite obviously different from COVID-19, but all-cause mortality. And then third, it is striking how much gritty people tend to be motivated by purpose and meaning, as opposed to the pursuit of pleasure. And this orientation toward purpose shows the exact same pattern with all-cause mortality, uh, as does optimism. So in sum, yes, I believe that your psychological makeup, perhaps including your grit, uh, this contributes to how you're managing right now and how you'll do in the future. And your psychological makeup, including your grit, I will emphasize, is malleable, not fixed. All of the things I talked about in these six minutes can be learned, practiced, and developed. I'll end there, Larry, but I know you encouraged me to sign my book for further reading. I won't do that, but I will suggest visiting characterlab.org, a nonprofit website that provides actionable advice for parents and educators based on science. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Angela. Um, I guess that's good news for me. I'm a real big optimist, so I plan to live a long time. Um, our <laughs> next speaker is Steve Fallock. Uh, Dr. Fallock uh, is one of my closest friends. He's going to talk to us about elective surgery. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, thank you, LB, for the opportunity to speak to this esteemed group. Uh, beginning around mid to late March, most Northeast governors prohibited any elective surgery from taking place in a hospital. Only surgeons performing emergency life-threatening surgery were permitted to operate. And excluded from the roster of life-threatening surgeries was most cancer surgeries, elective heart, and almost all surgical, su surgical specialty care, 
including orthopedic, urological, ENT, and in my case, any reconstructive plastic surgery, including breast reconstruction after mastectomies. Obviously, all cosmetic surgery was also banned. If someone is injecting you or a loved one with Botox or other injectables, they are breaking the law. There was a case in the Upper East Side. A cosmetic uh, dermatologist was injecting. He was fined. He was doing it again. He was closed. Um, now, behind the, the prohibitions was a view that all hospitals needed to divert all hospital resources, ventilators, respirators, masks, gowns, operating rooms, towards the patients hospitalized with the virus. For hospitals, the loss of elective surgery translated into a significant loss of revenue-generating gen procedures. The American Hospital Association is saying its hospitals are losing roughly $50 billion a month. And the revenue loss is not just related to the actual surgery, but also to the pre-op medical clearance, which includes medical evaluation, blood work, and radiological examination. Uh, I was in a hospital early this morning taking care of a woman who was mauled by a dog, and I can relay from the staff and the administrators that the hospital's patient census is uh, significantly low, and that basically comes as no surprise. From an economic standpoint, hospitals need to get elective surgery, surgical procedures up and running, and their backlog of cases, which is at least two months long, cleared. I'm hearing hospital administrators want operating rooms running 24-7, which may not be possible without overwhelming the staff, as well as surgeons who don't necessarily like operating at night. What I expect to happen next is that surgeons will list their cases and department chiefs and administrators will determine which cases are more urgent than others and schedule accordingly. So a liver cancer resection will obviously take priority over an ACL reconstruction. An obvious relief valve to the hospitals is getting ambulatory surgery centers operating at the same time. These are usually two or three operating room facilities and they've been shut down since they don't perform emergency surgery. Hospitals in the past hated surgery centers. They viewed them as competitors siphoning off the well-insured best-paying cases, but hospitals have been buying minority shares of surgery centers or billing their own so as to not lose this source of revenue. Private equity has also been a big player in this space over the last few years. So when will elective surgery be permitted? Well, each governor's statement and messaging about hospital reopening is slightly different. Some states seem willing to allow elective surgery in hospital, while others have not made the distinction as to where surgeries will be allowed to take place. We've been working with each state uh, to allow surgery centers and office-based operating rooms to open at the same time so as to clear the backlog of surgery and to provide our patients with access to care. To no one's surprise, most patients right now would prefer a surgery center or, or office OR than having to go to the hospital. All of this, of course, depends on guidelines and having appropriate PPE. So what to expect and when? So each state has its own guidelines and timelines, but at least here in the Northeast region, most governors are following Governor Cuomo's lead. Based on what I've heard and been involved in, most elective surgery will start earliest May 18th and more likely June 1st. If you've got a cancerous lesion, a blockage of some type, or a heart issue, I'd expect that surgery would not be delayed for that long. If it's more elective than that, either expect to wait some time, or if your surgeon works at a surgery center, more likely than not, your surgery will be done there. You will be tested with an antigen test anywhere from 24 to 72 hours before the surgery. That test will likely be, most, be performed by either Lab, Core, or Quest. If it's positive, you'll be reported to the state per regulations and be told to quarantine. Any elective surgery will be postponed until four to six weeks after testing negative. If your test is negative, you'll be asked to self-quarantine until the surgery. I'm hearing some hospitals are asking for anyone who will bring you to the hospital and pick you up also to self-quarantine. 
Your consent form, which was long to begin with, will now include all COVID-19 possibilities. A recent Lancet article, which is making the rounds among surgeons, is a Chinese study of 34 COVID-negative patients who underwent elective surgery, with 44% of those patients requiring ICU care and a 20% mortality rate. It's not a perfect study, but it's being quoted enough to scare surgeons and to warn their patients. So most of you have never been in an operating room, so what, would, what will be different? If you're having surgery below the neck, your surgeon staff will be wearing standard operating gear, scrubs, gowns, mask, headgear. For head and neck surgery, expect face shields, N95 or KN95 masks too. If you're having general anesthesia, your anesthesiologist will have full PPE protection too. Everyone except the anesthesiologist will be out of the room for 20 minutes, both for intubation and extubation due to possible aerialization of the virus, which means, which means longer operating room times. Post-op, you might be placed in a blood thinner due to the increased reports of clotting issues with the virus to prevent any possible deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary emboli. Any post-op fever, although there are countless reasons for them, will now be considered COVID, COVID virus now until proven otherwise. And now switching gears to what my wife jokes is the good part of the job, and that's Botox, fillers, injectables, and laser treatments in the office. We've been stressing with the health commissioners and governors that there's a distinction between procedures and surgery and that testing is not required for procedures. And for the most part, they agree. The only area of disagreement is some lasers where there's a flume generated that may contain viral particles. Before you go, you will most likely answer a questionnaire to determine if you are a safe candidate for a procedure. A lot of us have been doing Zoom health consults for both surgery and injectables and have been asking these screening questions. If you're deemed accept, accept, acceptable, expect to wait outside in the car or in the street as there will be distancing in the office. You'll have your temperature scanned before you enter the main waiting room, so hopefully your waiting room time will be diminished. Everyone will have to wear a mask, both staff and patients. As far as treatments go, it will be business as usual, except you may not get your lips filled or your nasal labial fold fixed since we won't want your mask removed but Botox will still be injected as needed. And as we've seen from social media, people need their Botox as much as a haircut, hair coloring, or eyebrows trimmed. From an industry perspective, prior to the outbreak, there had been a shortage of some of the injectables, but they are becoming more widely available. I haven't been following their stocks, but the big players, Allergan, who's the 800-pound gorilla in the cosmetic space, MERS, Galderma, are ready to go as much as doctors are. And finally, for those of you who are wondering how people without jobs can afford either surgery or injectables, and whether cosmetic surgery is a reliable or a leading indicator of the economy, I'm always surprised by how many people, and especially millennials, are willing to use credit cards or financing for their procedures. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Steve. Um, our next speaker is Scott Galloway. Scott's a professor of marketing at NYU Stern School. He's also a serial entrepreneur. Uh, Scott, take it away. Thanks very much, Larry. Uh, my name is Scott Galloway. I teach at NYU. Uh, appreciate your time this afternoon. I'm going to focus on three terms, accelerant, corona core, and variance. Uh, I think COVID-19, as relates to business, is more of an accelerant than a change agent, and that is the future is just happening future. So if you look at retail, we have specialty retail apparel and department stores. We're in the bottom of the seventh inning now. They're in the bottom of the ninth. Amazon and Walmart are only consolidating power. This should be called, or the stimulus could be called the Amazon and Walmart Shareholder Act as uh, the shareholders of Amazon and Walmart could not have imagined in the wildest dreams two and a half trillion dollars of stimulus being spread around households and then having federally mandated closure of 98% of their competition. 
So you have this essentially this accelerant and this massive um, extrapolation of the inequality in retail. Uh, you're also seeing it in media, where ad-supported media is having a difficult time. The two largest radio companies, iHeartMedia and Cumulus, will likely be Chapter 22, and that is they'll declare bankruptcy twice in two years, as they've seen a 70% decline in revenues, whereas Google and Facebook will experience a top-line revenue trajectory that the president and CNBC are all hoping for, and that is they'll have a V. They'll be off substantially in the short run, and then they will come back with 70% of all digital marketing spend up from 60% as many marketers decide to not reignite or to not just go to just give up permanently print and TV and terrestrial advertising. We're going to see greater change, if you will, among the two most disruptable industries in America, specifically probably what is the largest consumer industry in the world, and that is U.S. healthcare, which has grown inflation faster uh, grown prices faster than inflation with a dramatic, dramatically low satisfaction. And what strikes me, and I'd love to hear some of the other physicians uh, address this, is that it, it appears to me that somewhere between 90 and 99 percent uh, of people who have contracted, endured, and then uh, survived COVID-19 will have never entered a doctor's office or a hospital, and that it's creating this dispersion of delivery that will create an unbelievable surge in investment and reallocation of human and financial capital into telehealth and remote healthcare. Uh, that will be second to the disruption of the change that will happen in my industry. Whereas we have tried to convince people we are public servants, I believe we have become whores who prey on the hopes and dreams of middle-class Americans and have raised prices much faster than inflation such that we can charge $68,000 a year for what has become a mediocre experience called the university experience. In my class, they're expecting 170 kids to show up at NYU in the fall and sit elbow to elbow at $7,000 a piece. That translates to $100,000 a night. I do not believe that is going to happen, and I don't believe anyone has ever endured $100,000 for a Zoom class, which is what NYU is still hallucinating is going to take place in the fall. This will create a domino effect where the mother of all gap years results in the better schools dramatically expanding their enrollment, scaling technology as their universities won't be as taxed because there won't be as many people on campus. They will recapture those gross margin dollars. But the cartel of education that consists of duopolies that lets Pepperdine charge as much as USC or UCLA will be broken. And we're going to see several hundred universities not reopen in the fall, and then subsequently we'll see several hundred universities never reopen in the subsequent fall. So we're looking at tremendous disruption, I believe, in healthcare and education. A Corona Corps, I think this presents a tremendous opportunity to create a services industry not unlike what the Latter-day Saints do with missionaries or Peace Corps has done with 167,000 volunteers, including China, the world Wrestling Federation superstar and Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, and that is give young people the opportunity to serve in the agency of others. The key to the flattening the apex of uh, what will probably be, you know, we're hoping a pretty anemic or uh, uh, relapse will be, or the algebra is pretty simple. It's uh, distancing times tracing times uh, isolation. And it seems to me that we need to dramatically expand our 2,500 tracers, mostly focused on food-borne illnesses uh, uh, or STDs, and turn uh, 
let loose an army of tracers. And I believe that there's an enormous opportunity or surge of human capital from kids who are being dumped at universities as they, through a mix of social media and helicopter parenting, do not have the emotional capacity uh, to really be in college. And as a result, would benefit from sort of voluntary or mandatory conscription, similar to what Israel or some Northern European countries do. And just as 19-year-olds are not immune from bullets who go into the armed service, we do have a young cohort that does seem to be um, less damaged by this virus. And so if we were to enlist this Corona Corps uh, and pay them twenty to $30,000 a year and after two years of service defer their tuition 25 to 100%, depending upon the income level of their house, at a cost of 25 to $50 billion, that's effectively a 2% insurance policy on top of the $2.5 trillion stimulus that might reduce the likelihood we don't need another $2.5 trillion stimulus. And we might mature a generation similar to the leadership in the 50s and 60s that were so productive in terms of passing groundbreaking legislation as a function of their shared history and uniform and a focus on greatness in the agency of others, a recognition of cooperation as our power uh, as a species, and also put America first as opposed to their partisan politics. I think a Corona Corps is an enormous opportunity for us. And then finally, variants. If you think of most of us operating at 60 to 70% of our capacity at work. Uh, there's a huge opportunity if you're blessed to be able to be productive at home right now. Jerry Rice, the greatest wide receiver in the history of the NFL, had something called functional speed, and that is he knew when to accelerate or decelerate. And this is an opportunity, if you have the opportunity, to really turn on the Jets professionally and lap the competition and make tremendous progress because of the variance in productivity across industries and individuals right now. At the same time, I think there's an enormous opportunity for what I would call the, the, the repair and the strengthening of relationships. And again, going back to the armed services, we award medals to young people for their grace and their courage under fire. We are in a crisis that is of historic proportions. There are a lot of people that are suffering emotionally and financially. If you're in a position to demonstrate courage, demonstrate love, demonstrate generosity to others. I believe this presents a unique opportunity for the repair and the strengthening of relationships. Do you have the relationship you want with your parents? If you were to have to say goodbye to one of your siblings, would you want things to be how they are as they stand? Have you let friendships wane? Have you not made the investments in them? Have you let perceived slights get in the way? of friendships. There is a dramatic opportunity professionally, but there is a profound opportunity to do in uh, weeks or months what typically might take years or decades, and that is uh, the repair and strengthening of uh, meaningful key relationships in your life. Uh, I'll leave it there, Larry. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Daniel Berger. Uh, Dr. Berger, uh, worked on the HIV vaccine, HIV cocktail, um, and he's a specialist in HIV treatment. Go ahead, Daniel. Uh, thanks, Larry. The coronavirus pandemic is certainly dredging up old memories of the AIDS crisis. HIV largely affected the gay community, and during the early years, the government didn't respond quickly to provide education on protection, nor provide support services for those affected. There were no antiviral drugs for treatment, and many were dying daily. But some physicians became involved. 
rapidly conducting independent research, and others participated in pharmaceutical studies, and I was heavily involved in both. Unlike the early desperate years of the AIDS epidemic, we're seeing rapid-fire studies of investigational treatments without rigorous placebo-controlled design in the hopes of finding solutions to save severely ill COVID-19 patients. Now let's compare HIV and COVID-19 disease. First, HIV transmission is through body fluids, such as through sharing of needles or through sexual intercourse. HIV is much more difficult to transmit than COVID-19, that is, vis-a-vis respiratory particles and seemingly innocuous means. Also, before HIV treatment emerged, the vast majority of infected were eventually struck down at the prime of their life. They were younger, often in good health without underlying conditions. As opposed to COVID-19, most that get infected will be asymptomatic or have only mild manifestations, and it's primarily the older age groups who are at higher risk. In terms of disease course, when a person gets infected with HIV, within two to six weeks, individuals can manifest flu-like illness that resolves quickly, but many are unaware they've become HIV infected. HIV mounts a viral attack on the immune system, and if left untreated, Individuals quietly, over several months to years, increase, increasingly develop immune system devastation until they eventually succumb to opportunistic infection and disease. In, in contrast, the symptoms of COVID-19 infection appear quickly, within days, and if death occurs, it is in within days. In COVID-19, the virus has a predilection to attack lung tissue and cause severe pneumonia, and can evolve to complete respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. So though both viruses differ in their disease course, the ways in which we developed treatment for HIV can serve as an example for dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. From a treatment standpoint, both viruses target particular cells and they bind and fuse to, be to before gaining entry into the cell, which enables it to replicate using the host genetic material. We've learned how to disrupt HIV by developing different medications that inhibit the virus at these various pathway steps. For COVID-19, theoretically, researchers could also look to develop agents that can do the same, target the virus at different steps of its replicative process. So going back to HIV, treatment began with the antiviral drug ADT. It inhibits HIV at an early step of its replicative process. But ADT alone has limited effect. So in 1992, I conducted the world's first study of combination therapy. I paired a second agent and demonstrated that two drugs attacking the virus was more effective than using one. This became a stepping stone for the HIV cocktail, which is a three-drug combination that limits viral replication within an HIV-positive individual. Research has also cured hepatitis C with combination antiviral the same way. Now, about one week ago, remdesivir became the first antiviral to receive emergency use approval to treat COVID-19. Increasingly, you may have seen a study that was published in The Lancet and covered in yesterday's New York Times that looked at treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 patients with a triple combination of antiviral drugs. The investigators demonstrated that the three-drug the three combo was more successful than one drug alone. I expect that we'll need to find or develop other antivirals to be used in combination with remdesivir for better results. 
We've also learned through trial and error that HIV treatment needs to be initiated early because prompt treatment provides for better results, greater survival, and reduced complications. This shouldn't be a surprise, as it's the same with cancer, heart disease, and many other diseases plaguing the body. Unfortunately, our only approved treatment for COVID-19, remdesivir, requires administration intravenously. In other words, in a hospital setting where patients are already pretty sick before treatment is initiated, so intravenous remdesivir is not going to be a practical solution for treating patients early, which is logically the best opportunity for successful treatment, unless we can safely administer it in an outpatient setting or have access to orally administered antivirals used way before hospitalizations need to occur. I'd like to mention that research was unsuccessful at developing an HIV vaccine, but we can fully prevent HIV infection in a patient with a combination pill of two antivirals known as PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And as an added benefit, it lowered infection rates and, and disease spread among you know, the public at large. To make a final summation, I believe that to treat COVID-19 efficiently and successfully, we will require orally administered antivirals that are safe and effective, perhaps a combination of antivirals, so that at the first onset of symptoms, a physician can perform a rapid COVID test and promptly prescribe medications to reduce the signs and symptoms, prevent hospitalizations, effectively reducing transmission and infection rates. I'll leave it there. Great. Uh, Daniel, we'll come back to you in question and answer period. Um, our next speaker is Stuart Buck. Uh, Stuart comes um, to us from the Arnold Ventures, where he's been studying bad science. Uh, we did Stuart's book um, in our book club, uh, Acting White. Stuart, fire away. Thanks, Larry. So the theme of my talk is this, that despite a lot of bad studies that we've seen in the news lately, Science in the era of COVID, or what it might call COVID science, offers a model for improving the quality and innovation of all of science. So let me explain. So the first major point, the typical way we do science is too individualistic, too slow, and too unavailable or closed. So it's too individualistic because from the time you're a doctoral student to the time that you're up for tenure, you're judged on your individual contributions. Are you coming up with publishable results how high is your stack of publications? How many citations do you personally have? Um, it's also too slow because it can take many months or even years for an article to wind its way through peer review before finally appearing in print. For example, one review of clinical trials found that the time between a trial's completion and publication was typically between 1.7 and three years. And it's too closed off in that publications are expensive, data sets usually aren't shared, and so forth. Now, the, the second major point, COVID science is dramatically different. It's more collaborative. As the New York Times puts it, while political leaders have locked their borders, scientists have been shattering theirs, creating a global collaboration unlike any in history. The pace of COVID science is also far more rapid. Studies are appearing in top journals in weeks or even days, rather than after several months or years. Uh, thousands of preprints have been posted online, which refers to articles that have not yet been peer-reviewed. And it's all more open science as well. Journals have agreed to make thousands of their COVID papers freely available to the public and to scientists and their worldwide data sharing initiatives so that the COVID data is put to its maximum use. The OECD even put out a report recently why open science is critical to combating COVID-19. The third 
phenomenon, though, is that there's been some backlash against all this speed and openness. So a typical recent headline, unvetted science is fueling COVID-19 misinformation. Or this headline from the Columbia Journalism Review, covering science at dangerous speed. And there is a point to this. There have been a lot of bad studies in the news. So here are a few examples. About a week ago, the Economist reported on a paper out of France claiming that, quote, smokers are much less likely to suffer severely from COVID-19, end quote, and speculating that nicotine has a protective effect. Now, if you look at the actual paper, what they did was interview several hundred hospitalized people in France and ask them whether they smoked. Six percent said yes. And the authors say that this is much lower than the average smoking rate in all of France. And so, voila, smoking is uh, good for you. Well, interviews are highly questionable in this circumstance. Uh, some patients might deny being smokers because they want to make a good impression. Um, but worse, the data is only on patients who are not in the ICU because the authors say that ICU patients are too hard to interview. And nor for that matter, I would point out, does the data include dead people? Because it turns out it's very hard to interview dead people. So it means that if a study depends on interviewing people to find out the key uh, data that you're going to rely upon, it's going to underrepresent people who already died and the reasons for their deaths. So for all we know from the study, all of the French smokers were already in the ICU or had already died. So it's irresponsible for the economists to present this as if it's a reason to start smoking. Here's another example, and this isn't really a study, it's more of a data analysis, but it, it's, it's kind of fun to mix on up. So in late April, there was a Wall Street Journal op-ed titled, Do Lockdowns Save Many Lives? In most places, the data say no. The main author is TJ Rogers, founder of Cypress Semiconductor, and along with a couple of other entrepreneurs, he did a, quote, simple one-variable correlation of deaths per million and days to shutdown, by which he meant the number of days that it took for a state to issue a lockdown order. So he, his results were, quote, the correlation coefficient was 5.5%, so low that the engineers I used to employ would have summarized it as no correlation and moved on to find the real cause of the problem, end quote. Now, my problem with this is that just as correlation isn't causation, the lack of correlation isn't the lack of causation. Because after all, a governor of a densely populated state with lots of international travel might correctly see that there's a high risk of COVID-19 and decide to shut down earlier than a state that's mostly rural and sparsely populated. If the first state still sees a higher rate of COVID-19 deaths than the second state, it doesn't mean that shutdowns don't work. In both states, the death rate might have been even higher without a shutdown. So the real question here is how much shutdowns slow the transmission of COVID compared to not shutting down, and whether and how the shutdowns can be safely lifted and to what extent. Those are great questions to be asking. The Wall Street Journal uh, data analysis provides no information about that. So a third example is a study out of Stanford claiming that the true fatality rate of COVID is about the same as the flu. Now, the way they got to this conclusion was they tested residents of Santa Clara County for antibodies to COVID, and they found that the infection rate was perhaps 50 times what had been reported. So it, logically, if that many more people were infected without getting sick or dying, then the risks of COVID are far overestimated. This paper got a huge amount of publicity, and that's indeed because it's studying a question that we need to know. But there were many problems with the study. One is that they recruited people to test by sending around messages and ads that basically said, if you think you had COVID, sign up here to know for sure. So now they're studying a group of people who are not a random sample, but were highly selected for being at risk of COVID or being interested in COVID. And another problem is just sheer implausibility. If you took their calculations seriously, then given the actual number of deaths in New York City, more people would have to be infected than even exist in New York City. So if the study returns impossible results, something went wrong. So a final point to wrap it up, even with all these bad studies in the news, it's not as if normal science is all that great either. At Arnold Ventures, we have funded work on scientific reproducibility 
And across many fields, even traditional peer-reviewed science has trouble being replicated. There are many examples of bad science that was peer-reviewed, and that perversely gets reported in the news as if traditional peer review automatically makes science trustworthy. It doesn't. In fact, what we see happening in social media right now is far more aggressive and thorough than traditional peer review in catching mistakes, bad data, or analyses, and so forth. In real time, you can see the world's top experts in immunology and epidemiology um, and clinical trials on Twitter analyzing and tearing apart the recent studies. So I'd argue that what we see with COVID science is how all of science ought to work more often. It's more collaborative, open, and innovative, and yet combined with public scrutiny that is more open and critical than traditional peer review. Thanks. Thank you, Stuart. Um, this is a live show, and with live shows, there's always technical difficulties. Uh, Ashoka Modi, if you are um, listening, can you please check your email and call in uh, the number I've emailed you? Yeah, so I, I am on uh, Alari. Oh, okay, fire away. I apologize. Go ahead. Okay, so um, on Europe, um, I'll make uh, four quick points. Uh, first, in general, I believe this will be a slow recovery uh, worldwide uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, the disease itself will take time to control. Uh, partial o uh, opening will have uh, will create all kinds of supply side uh, supply link problems. Those supply link problems will be aggravated in an international context because countries that are ready to sell may not have buyers. Countries that are ready to buy will not have sellers. And that will go on for a while. There'll be uncertainties, which will cause further delays. And most importantly, we have come into this crisis with vast amounts of debt. And we are going to start seeing bankruptcies at some point soon, which will further delay the, uh, the uh, recovery. On all these scores, Europe is worse off than the United States. Uh, Europe comes into the crisis in a near recessionary condition, and the feeble are always hurt more when uh, an illness strikes. Uh, Europe is much more tied to international trade, and the European debt levels are very high. European banks are very fragile. So the, the recovery is going to be slow. It's going to be particularly slow in Europe. And it is going to be particularly slow in Italy. And Italy is, got, the, got hurt by the crisis most aggressively, has not grown for the last 20 years after it joined the euro. It was in recession before the crisis. And its banks are, are, are most fragile uh, in, in all of Europe. Plus, Italy had already coming into this crisis, the government had a debt of 135% of GDP. And depending on how deep the crisis is, that will go up to something in the range of 180% of GDP, possibly even more. One estimate at Bruegel in Brussels puts it at 190, but it will be somewhere in that range of one. 175 to 190. The, in terms of policy response, they're broadly the northern countries that have the fiscal space to take care of themselves. Germany in particular, 
although I should say, even with regard to Germany, Germany is going through a structural change itself. Uh, its car industry, which has been the fulcrum of its growth process for the last half century, is undergoing a wrenching transition because of regulatory and other reasons. Uh, Germany is not prepared for the next IT-based IT economy. And Germany has this albatross called Deutsche Bank, which is always on the edge. But Germany will probably summon up a fiscal stimulus somewhere in the range of 10% of its GDP, about the same size uh, as, as the United States. But that leaves Spain and Italy with virtually no stimulus and, the, and a very large uh, economic downturn. And so we have to understand what Europe is. Europe is a confederation of states, just like the United States was from the Revolutionary War in 1776 till it became a uh, federation in 1789. And during that period, there is always a scramble for fiscal resources. The New York State famously withheld import duties coming in through its ports. The states refused to pay uh, for uh, war debts and for pensions. There's a standard problem with confederation of states. And we are seeing that play out in Europe in an aggressive way. So all talk about a joint fiscal response, corona bonds, euro bonds, that's just talk. That's what I call a fierce involutionary drive, a lot of ceremony, but no action. So the entire action now depends on the European Central Bank. What will the European Central Bank do? The European Central Bank can, in principle, print unlimited amounts of money and buy up the debt of uh, uh, the Italian and Spanish debt. Just stepping back, the U.S. is U.S. Central, uh, Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, is in fact buying more than the net issuance of U.S. Treasuries, and the Bank of England is as promised to buy as much as as the uh, UK government issues. The Japanese have been buying their debt, but the European Central Bank is not a normal central bank. It is the central bank of a confederation of states. And therefore, right now, the ECB holds 23% of Italian debt. That's rapidly growing, going up. It's going to reach something in the range of 40, 45, 50% of Italian debt. At that point, and, and the same thing is going to happen more or less for Spain. At that point, the ECB will in effect own Italy. And, and so the question will arise in the, in the governing council, how much can you buy of Italian debt and what happens if the Italians default on the debt that is owed to the ECB? We are already seeing the political process being preempted by a legal process, which is the German Federal Constitutional Court has said, you cannot just buy unlimited amounts of debt of other countries because we then will be on the hook. And so the bottom line is, I expect 
that in the next six months to a year, the Italians will either default on private on uh, to private investors or to the European Central Bank. And when that happens, the question will be: the Europeans have ducked for 70 years a central question of who they are. If they try to remain a confederation of states, that will begin to crack. Uh, their option would be to become a federation, which will be a barrier they have chosen to never cross before. And so uh, there will be at some point in the coming months, unless there is an economic miracle or there is a vaccine, there will be at some point a, a, a major decision that Europe will need to take. Thank you. Larry, I think I took six minutes, yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to go out of order a second because of a need of, of one of the speakers. Uh, our next speaker will be Steve Greenbaum. Uh, Steve is one of my oldest friends. We met in junior high school. We played on the same softball team together. Uh, he's decided to go, on, go down a different path than I did in my life. Uh, he owns and uh, operates... Uh, Section 8, Affordable Housing for Income-Restricted Seniors Around the Country. Steve, can you go ahead? Thank you, Larry. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you going a little bit out of order to save my skin on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to everyone out there. My company, Senior Housing Group, as Larry said, focuses exclusively on affordable senior housing. It's important to note that our buildings are not nursing homes or assisted living facilities, but rather they are full apartment units providing independent living for, little, for limited income seniors. So while we don't have an obligation or responsibility for our residents' health and well-being per se, we do have a responsibility to provide a safe and secure living environment for our senior residents, and we generally try to go that extra mile because even though we may not have a responsibility, we do truly care about our residents' health and well-being. Soon after this crisis started, it was clear to all that seniors were among the most vulnerable populations out there. Ownership and our management team believed that communication to our seniors was key. Generally speaking, seniors can be very concerned. They're even more concerned when they're living in a government-subsidized apartment building during a crisis such as we're facing right now. So we sent letters to all 2,000 of our residents, posted the same letters in the building, basically sharing information as frequently as possible and letting them know what they can expect at their buildings. What could they expect in their buildings? First, we wanted to limit spaces and opportunities for the seniors to congregate. To do that, we removed all furniture from the lobby. We locked all of the community rooms. We removed all puzzles and bingo and other things that seniors do during their free time. And we basically locked all non-essential components of the building, so really only laundry rooms, elevators, and the lobbies are open to the public, if you will, not the public, but to our residents. And we are having our staff clean these areas constantly with a special focus on high-touch areas like laundry machines and elevator buttons. We're also limiting visitors to those who are essential, mostly to caregivers or those who are essential to uh, the well-being and health of our residents. We created remote office hours so that our staff was isolated and not exposed to residents and vice versa. 
And probably most importantly, because remember, we're dealing with a limited income population, we wanted to make sure that residents were connected to the groceries and pharmaceuticals that they need. What this required was a lot of on-the-ground legwork by our local site staff, making sure to connect with grocers, pharmacies, try to get discounted delivery fees, making sure that our seniors could get what they need to eat and to uh, care for their health. And we worked closely with city and county senior offices uh, and departments to access those services that we were unable to find on our own. We knew, however, that even with all of the precautions that we're taking, number one, we cannot control everyone or everything, and it's most likely inevitable that some of our residents will get sick. Generally, I'd say we've been very lucky, or perhaps being as proactive as we've been has helped us have some good luck. We've had isolated uh, cases of COVID positive tests at some of our buildings, but really no major spreads with the exception of one building located in Tucson, Arizona, where we really had a bit of a struggle. We had one resident that tested positive. We had her closest friend who also lived in the building test negative, but sent home for self-quarantine and isolation. Unfortunately, she was an early onset dementia patient and had trouble remembering that she was supposed to be isolating or that she had been exposed to the disease. Ultimately, we decided that we needed to be more proactive at that particular building. So with help from Tucson's mayor, members of Congress representing the area, and local health officials, we were able to get a crew of health workers from the local health clinic to come to the building dressed in their PPE with masks and gloves and everything that you would expect. And they went door to door to each of the apartments in the building. It's a 143 unit building and administered tests to any resident that was willing to take the test. Ultimately, 95% of the residents were tested in their apartments. What we learned from this is that 10% of the residents plus or minus tested positive and were either admitted to the hospital or told to self-quarantine in the building. Unfortunately, some of those residents have now passed away, including a married couple who actually passed away in their unit. We knew that they had tested positive. We assumed when we heard the dog barking in their unit that they were in the hospital. And when our maintenance staff went into their unit to feed the dog, he discovered that both the husband and the wife had passed away and were on the floor. These are obviously heartbreaking stories, extremely sad stories, and we've been fortunate to limit uh, our exposure to them, but it's always a concern and we're incredibly vigilant. We have since sent letters to all the residents in our building, alerting them again to the social distancing requirements and the self-quarantine that we're asking, and reminding them that it is a violation of their lease to do anything that puts any other residents at risk including walking around if you've either been exposed or potentially exposed to the virus. 
Unfortunately, we still struggled at our property in Tucson to get residents who believed that their liberty was at stake to take these precautions seriously. And we ultimately hired a full-time security guard to walk the halls and reminding folks that they're putting others at risk was a lease violation. And in some instances, we've had to actually write up lease violations. We have not moved to evict anybody. We are not planning to evict anybody, but we want to make sure that our residents take, the, take consideration for the health and well-being of the other residents that live in their building. Of course, we've limited visitors to the building to only those that are essential, and residents are not happy with any of this, but they understand and for the most part are going along. Larry asked me to comment briefly on the economics and what impact, if any, the COVID-19 crisis has had on our buildings. And I can tell you that we feel quite fortunate, unlike many of my friends and colleagues who are in other areas of real estate, we're doing fine. We're doing fine in large part because our rent comes through the Section 8 subsidy that the federal government provides on behalf of our residents, and that money continues to flow. The other part of the rent that is the resident's responsibility comes mostly through their social security or small pension payments. And because those continue to flow, our collections at our buildings are well over 93%, and in most instances, 98 or 99%. In the last recession, one of the things that impacted our overall occupancy in a little bit of a counterintuitive thought process is families that might have been struggling economically needed their parents or one of their parents who was living in our building to move in with them so they could get the added benefit of whatever social security or income that parent was receiving and also to be able to claim them as a dependent on their tax return. We have not seen any of that yet and we're keeping an eye on it, but I suspect that because of the social distancing requirements and the quarantines that are being imposed, that we're not likely to see occupancy hurt at our buildings as a result of those types of situations. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate it. And again, happy Mother's Day to everybody. Steve, one quick question before you jump. Um, sure. We had a uh, sociologist, Eric Kleinenberg, on a previous call, and he mentioned the distinction between social distancing and physical distancing. Um, I understand you want to keep these guys alive, and that should be your top priority, but if we're going to quarantine the elderly for a very, very long time and open up the rest of the economy, I'm worried about what isolation means for them. Have you thought about, you mentioned bingo as being axed. Um, is there a way you could have bingo or have social events at these institutions without, while maintaining physical distancing, uh, but allowing social intercourse to go on? So we're, we're thinking extensively about what we can do. One of the challenges that we face in that regard is the fact that our residents are, in fact, low income. So where, you know, I was able to go out and buy an iPad for my 82-year-old mother and help her remain connected and install Zoom on her computer, a lot of the folks that live in our buildings don't have computers, don't have iPads. They've relied on the computer rooms in the facility that are, you know, common area and, of course, shut down right now. So it's a little bit harder for us to get to them the technology they would need for a Zoom bingo, as an example. We are looking at different options, uh, you know, whether we can run something through a closed-circuit television within the building. But again, our primary concern has been making sure that they stay safe. And unfortunately, some of the social distancing will have a social impact on our residents.
Okay. Thank you, Steve. Um, our Thank next you, speaker is Bob Mirosich. Uh Bob comes to us. He's chairman and CEO of International Market Centers. Bob, fire away. Thanks, Larry. Um, first, I want to give everyone a brief overview of our unique business. Um, at, at a high level at IMC, we bring buyers and sellers of furniture, gift, home decor, and apparel together um, on a B2B basis. Um, today, I'll just talk about furniture. Um, the furniture buyers that come to our markets or events are from all channels of distribution. They're independent brick-and-mortar retailers, uh, many of whom, by the way, are now on the channel. They're the e-commerce giants like Amazon, Wayfair, Overstock. They're the regional furniture chains, outlet stores, department stores, interior designers. Um, every channel of distribution visit the showrooms in our buildings. And uh, the, the sellers in those showrooms are manufacturers are distributors of furniture products. So they're selling sofas, chairs, dining room, bedroom, home office, outdoor, um, and, and addressing the North American mar uh, market. And these sellers are from all over the world. Uh, we call these events a, a furniture market, as I said, and they're large events. In High Point, North Carolina, we attract over 75,000 buyers and sellers. In Atlanta, it's uh, over 100,000 buyers and sellers. They're mostly focused on the gift and apparel side of things. And in Las Vegas, which is furniture centric, about 50,000 buyers and sellers. All that in about 20 million square feet of our showrooms that are largely closed to the public. So in essence, as it relates to furniture, we're in the middle of about $115 billion of B2B furniture commerce. Um, as it relates to your first question, unfortunately, even before COVID-19, there was massive disruption in our furniture industries all in the context of the 25% tariffs that were imposed on furniture manufactured in China. China produced about 75% of all wood products sold in the United States and 50% of all upholstered product. That's sofas, chairs, recliners. Um, so starting in Q3 of last year, there was a mass movement out of China, moving supply chains to Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, and even Mexico. And this was incredibly disruptive and unprofitable for both retailers as well as manufacturers. Then on top of this, of course, the, the coronavirus um, hits. Most furniture retail is completely shut down except for a few e-commerce players who are really almost truly unfairly advantaged in this situation. But consequently, most manufacturers' revenues have gone down 80% and, and some even 100%. And, and to say this pandemic, pandemic is devastating uh, to the furniture industry, is, is certainly not an overstatement or an exaggeration. Um, is there uh, the second question about pent-up demand or will there be lower demand because of lower incomes and reduced home construction? Um, we just completed, and when I say just, I mean last week, a survey of 2,200 retail CEOs and presidents. And I think it's fair to say there's long-term optimism, but there's a clear recognition that there'll be a new normal. And, and this new normal in the furniture industry is really driven by the consumer and the changes in their attitudes towards shopping. Um, without a doubt, it's imperative that we make consumers feel safe and secure before there's any meaningful commerce that will follow. Um, anecdotally, most of the people taking the survey don't believe that's going to happen until the first quarter of next year or, or later. Um, I will say the, the survey highlighted 
but there's much optimism around this new normal, including an increased investment in the furnishings of homes. And, and that largely is driven by the amount of time people currently are spending in their home. Um, as, as you know, most of us are working at home, but also dining at home. Uh, and, and by the way, over the last 10 years, dining room furniture has been the only category where furnishing purchases have declined. And now families are actually eating together and socializing differently in their homes. And time will t- tell, but there's a lot of optimism in the industry around the kind of demand generation centered around more home-centric um, lifestyles. Um, the third question, uh, and we probe very deeply on, will, will people be willing to go back to trade shows? And, and, and the answer is clearly yes. Um, and, and part of that is digital. Even though we have a major digital investment um, and market spend at IMC in, in a digital market space, it's just not going to replace the uh, physical events. Both the buyers and the sellers in furniture clearly and, and overwhelmingly value um, the personal contact, the relationships, and looking, touching, and feeling. Um, the professional buyers, they want almost without exception to personally assess the fit, finish, texture, the quality of materials, and, uh, and ultimately judge the craftsmanship of the furniture personally. Um, that said, the big qualifier in all this, without a doubt, buyers will come back to our markets and trade shows in general, but, and this is a big but, only when they feel safe to travel and safe to stay in a hotel. Um, and the next question is, do I think there'll be any intermediate term problems related to the supply chain? Um, probably, uh, but I think it'll be very short lived and, and really will depend on how quickly commerce comes back. And I don't personally think it's going to return rapidly, um, like turning on a light switch. Uh, I think it'll be gradual and therefore minimally disruptive to supply chains. And, and largely, those supply chains have already moved out of China. However, in the interim, uh, it will clearly cost manufacturers more to produce smaller production runs or lot sizes to meet the actual demand. Um, and lastly, Larry, I'll just mention our survey shows that among retailers and manufacturers, there's a significant and strong bias for getting back to work. Um, but they clearly understand that it's imperative we make everyone feel safe and, and secure. Okay, thank you, Bob. Um, our final speaker before Q&A is Tim Schoen. He is the president and CEO of Biomed in the life science real estate market. Tim, are you there? I am. Hi, Larry. Great. Fire away. Hey, uh, uh, just by way of background, we run a, uh, uh, a colleague of Bob's, but we run a uh, 11.5 million square foot biotech and technology real estate company uh, located in, in the core markets. But um, the first question I have in, uh, to talk to Larry about is, has the politics of biotech changed in the last eight weeks? Uh, the first question is a doozy, uh, one I'll spend the most time on, but uh, I might rephrase it to say, how do you put a price on a pandemic? Um, that said, the efforts to contain the uh, epidemic have clearly refocused the political discussion that has centered around um, high drug prices as we enter 2020 into today, where politicians are focused on helping the industry develop vaccines and therapies that target the virus. I think the irony here is that just six months ago, polls showed the pharmaceutical industry as the most loathed in America, and lawmakers were clearly focused on policies to regulate or rein in, as some people might say, 
drug companies' pricing policies. The current crisis has changed that discussion away from these price, these drug pricing controls, but it has highlighted what is at stake and the important implications of a drug pricing discussion. Um, we're clearly seeing the strategic and health benefits the U.S. has from a, and I'm going to emphasize this, a robust biotech and pharma pharmaceutical industry. Fortunately, the U.S., and I would say the U.K.'s ability to respond to the current crisis is exhibit A on why we need to continue to have a growing pharmaceutical industry so we can tackle these types of challenges. Many nations are looking to the United States for that reason, and the U.S. is receiving a huge dividend from its past decades of investment. Biotech and pharma's ability to respond swiftly to the coronavirus demonstrates the way researchers are continually pushing the boundaries of science, risking investment to advance science, when there's no clear payoff. While this is not blinding insight, the reason we have medicines to test right now is because of the companies and research institutions that have made significant investments over the years developing treatments to address public health threats like, you know, H1N1, Ebola, and other coronaviruses. They are putting at risk resources to develop, test, and manufacture new treatments and vaccines without knowing whether they will actually work for, our, for patients. The current environment, I think, Larry, as well, has allowed us to think about uh, economics around drug discovery. First, our price discussion around drugs may have caused us to value each drug discovery too narrowly. When we focus on, say, the price of an antiviral that has been approved for a specific treatment, but could be a possible treatment or part of a therapy to treat coronavirus, call it the insurance value of medical innovation. Second, there has been, second, what's been lost in the debate over drug pricing and affordability is the special and unique property we have in nearly all of our medicines and that is that they will eventually go generic and become inexpensive over time. Hospital stays and surgery, while obviously critical, never do. Politics, however, has not taken a holiday given this environment, and we've seen it in draft versions of the, of the emergency spending bills. Groups were seeking to give human and health services the power to strip intellectual property protections from any vaccine or medication whose price was deemed too high. But that language, fortunately, was ultimately struck. But without getting too political and recognizing there have been a few bad actors in the biotech sector, the loss of intellectual property and price controls could chill and reduce the amount of capital and investment that comes into the biotech sector to fund research. We just need to make sure that we've got the right incentives in place to continue seeing capital flow into these innovative industries. Uh, the second question, are we, continue, are we continuing to develop speculative space for life science? The answer is yes. As a real estate developer, we're continuing to build speculative space to serve not only the life science, but the technology sector. We currently have about $2.5 billion of new campuses under development in the U.S. and the U.K., we made the decision four years ago to focus on markets where urbanization and innovation have come together. I would define that as Boston, Cambridge, Seattle, kind of the South Lake Union area, San Francisco, which is really the peninsula in South San Francisco, San Diego, which is really UTC, San Diego County. 
We are building purpose-built lab facilities so people have so people have an idea what these lab buildings and campuses are like. They have higher clear heights. They allow for increased ventilation, higher load limits to handle increased weight on each floor, large air handlers, lines to deliver gases and water to the benches. We designed these campuses to include amenities that will allow companies to attract and retain talent. We are tracking a deep pool of tenant demand, and by developing these campuses on a speculative basis, they create an inventory, if you will, that allows these research institutions and companies to expand rapidly and readily made facilities that have good bones, if you will, that allow them to customize the final tenant improvements and fit out their specific needs. And the final question as a bookend for today is, why is the life sciences real estate ideal in the current environment? Um, the first is um, there's more capital and research funding flowing into biotech and tech to fund novel therapeutics medical devices and utilize big data to help find drug candidates. Secondly, life science real estate represents the critical infrastructure necessary to support the life science and tech sector that are driving innovation and represented the greatest sources of growth for our economy. And finally, supporting what have become the centers of excellence in the U.S. and the U.K. will put us in a better position for the next novel threat. And in the meantime, we'll mean life-saving therapies and devices in the interim to improve our lives and treat disease. Great. Tim, quick question for you. Um, sure. You mentioned that you have in your facilities um, very high-quality air that moves very quickly through. And yeah. in a pre-call, uh, my brother said it's very expensive. It can cost as much as 100 bucks a square foot. Um, needless to say, we all want this new high-quality airflow if we're going to be inside. Is it possible in existing buildings to improve the HVAC, or is it? are we looking at what we have in um, therefore uh, infeasible to use existing space for, um, I'll call it high-dense gatherings. Yeah, I think there's two things. One, you can look at the filtration systems that are in the existing systems to see if you can upgrade the filter. That's number one. Number two, if you've got rest space or you've got space down, you know, in a parking lot or around the buildings, you could potentially put increased air handlers or increased capability around the buildings. Okay. Uh, Bob, question for you. Um, incomes are going to be way down. Uh, unemployment's going to be really high. Um, who's going to buy any furniture? Is that is well, it ultimate discretionary spending? It, it is, but, but if you look at the spend on, on furnishings, um, it's amazingly been um, resistant uh, to economic changes. There's only been three downturns since 1972 of actual consumer spend on furniture the greatest being during the Great Recession when it declined about 15%. Um, and so it's greatly correlated, by the way, to a change in, in, in residence. It could be moved from one rental facility to another, changing houses, changing cities, et cetera. So probably the outlook is, is, is really going to be more affected by, uh, by, by movements uh, and, and housing turnover. Okay. Uh, next question is for Ashoka Modi. Um, you had a pretty bleak uh, picture for, for Europe. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the, this, the, uh, the Spanish and the Italians um, are going to need money. Will the Northern Europeans provide them that ability to expand their fiscal deficits or not? So uh, there are two potential sources of money. One is 
some kind of a joint fiscal budget at the European level? There the answer is no. They're going to talk a lot about it. They will continue to talk about an animal called euro bonds or corona bonds. That's not going to happen. So the only game in town is the ECB. The ECB is printing money to buy Italian bonds. And there are two basic questions over here. How long will the ECB do that? The ECB, before we came into the crisis, owned 23% of Italian bonds. Uh, within a matter of a few months, that will go up to 40% of Italian bonds. Now, what happens when, when the ECB buys Italian bonds is that, in effect, it is a flight of capital from Italy to Germany. So the Germans, through the back door, investors sell their bonds, Italian bonds, and park their money in, in Germany. So the ECB is owed money by Italy, and it owes money to Germany. And that, that imbalance is growing rapidly as the ECB is buying Italian bonds. So there's going to come a point in time at which the Germans are going to say, what happens if the Italians default on these bonds? And that's where the politics will come in. So no, no fiscal uh, uh, support through a politically legitimate mechanism, but if a, an ECB support through a non-fiscal mechanism, which is not subject to political review in the short run, but will then become subject to political review as these numbers become large. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question is for uh, Stuart Fox. Stuart, um, you know, the, the news flow of, I'll call it scientific, the process related to COVID-19 is pretty intense. Everyone wants a vaccine. Everybody wants a treatment. Um, everybody wants to know the ratio of asymptomatic patients to the death rate. Um, and information is coming in using, we don't have time for proper scientific controlled experiments, and therefore we're using big data and everything else. Um, how can the public, how can the scientific community uh, get through that and know what is good versus bad science? Um, well, I mean, you asked a lot there. So as to the public, I would, my biggest advice would be like, wait a couple of weeks before you believe the headlines. Because a lot of the stories that hit the headlines uh, about a treatment, whether it's hydroxychloroquine or whatever the new treatment of the week is, uh, as soon as uh, the rest of the scientific community has the chance to dig into it, you'll see a lot of criticism uh, that normally would take place behind closed doors in the peer review process, you know, taking months or perhaps years. Um, but right now, you're right. You're seeing the, the immediate release, the headlines, and then the criticism comes after that. So just I, that's my biggest advice for the public would be give it a couple of weeks. Another piece of advice would be wait for multiple studies, multiple um, you know, replication studies, studies of the same issue. Because uh, you know, for, for any of these questions, like what's the actual rate of prevalence or you know, what, what's the um, efficacy of remdesivir? Like already there are multiple clinical trials going on on that same question. And any one of those uh, studies might by themselves be imperfect, but if you have multiple studies um, that, that approach it from slightly different angles and you, you wait till all that evidence comes in, um, then, then you get a better picture of what's going on. 
Um, and again, as to uh, even as to clinical trials, uh, I, I don't think we're in a situation where we need like many years to uh, to run a clinical trial, as is often the case for for some conditions. Um, you know, there are millions of COVID patients around the world. There's uh, you know a, a chance to see in rapid time, you know, what's the efficacy of of drugs, of treatments, et cetera. Um, so so I don't I don't think that. Uh, uh, you know, it, we're in a situation where, where scientists need to resort to um, to bad data uh, to replace uh, rigorous science uh, that through the through the normal process of doing randomized trials for for treatments and vaccines. Thank you, uh, Dr. Daniel Berger. Um, what, I want to talk about lessons we can have learned from HIV, um, in particular uh, with regards to a cocktail of of using multiple different treatments simultaneously. Um, in HIV, I mean, as a pro and con, you had the benefit of time. Here we have literally the entire globe trying to figure out what to do, and we're throwing the kitchen sink uh, at the patients. Um, when we do throw the kitchen sink, uh, we don't have proper controls, and we lack some of the scientific and statistical models to prove which aspects of the cocktail are not valuable or might be worthless or negative. How do you think about the problem of figuring out what should be the right combination in the cocktail? I think that um, every medication, that's really a great question. I think every medication that gets used has to have good rationale. In other words, we've got to uh, understand uh, how those medications work, if they can if they can be helpful. You can't just throw on a medication that uses for, for example, perhaps malaria and say it's going to work for a virus. You know, there should be some um, test of work, a working laboratory that actually has be able to show promise that it can affect a viral replication. You can, if you have one medication, so for example, remdesivir, that actually has been proven now to work, you can then take a second medication, add it to remdesivir, compare it to people that are on remdesivir alone. You, and yet simultaneously, you can have a third arm where you're adding a third drug to uh, those two medications. And, and, and then actually, because this um, course of illness is very short, you can find out very quickly, you know, patients are ill for a few days to a few weeks, you'll find out very quickly whether uh, those combinations can work. And you can actually multiply those studies by many, many different studies, add various different combinations, and still, without having to jeopardize good science, you can have good control groups. And now that we've established remdesivir works, that could be the control. And I think uh, it's possible that we can come up with combination treatment uh, fairly quickly. You mentioned over HIV that the current prophylactic is this pill uh, plus uh, some antivirals to protect uh, a sexual partner who is HIV positive, um, and that possibly we could be using a pill um, in lieu of a vaccine or in combination with a vaccine. Uh, but doesn't that take just as much time as the vaccine? Wouldn't that also take an 18-month solution? Or do well, you, are you say, viewing well, it as just a well, combination? Yeah, well, let's say this. Let's just say that a medication like remdesivir was available in pill form or, 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 or an injection. Um, you could uh, inject healthy subjects and uh, maybe do a quick trial. You can help you inject a bunch of people that you think are at risk, for example, healthcare workers, and, and people working in uh, nursing homes and other other places, and and quickly find out, you know, if you if you do a quick trial, where maybe you have a, 
unfortunately a placebo, um, you can find out whether, um, as for example, like we have for PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, you can find out whether uh, people that are on a pill or an injection can become immune or have less of a uh, severity of disease than the patients are in the control group. I mean, that's how, uh, that's how PrEP was. I mean, basically you took medications that were already part of the HIV cocktail because the medications that are used for PrEP are two of the medications that are used in, in most of the cocktails that we use these days. And, and look, and they should, uh, they should be able to uh, conceivably be used effectively as a preventative. I don't in, know if that answers the question. Yeah, in the, in the remsevere uh, studies that were released, um, they showed that um, for patients that got well, it reduced the amount of time that they were sick, but did not have any effect on mortality. Um, well, I'm wondering, you know, look, you, as you mentioned, it's a quick disease, and so obviously I, I would like to make it quicker, but I'm really mostly concerned about mortality. We didn't shut our economy down because... It was a nasty flu. We shut our economy because it killed people, mostly the elderly people. Um, how do you think about that in the context of um, a future cocktail? Well, I, I think it's not clear whether remdesivir um, can have an effect on mortality. It may possibly have an effect. It depends on you know whom you're treating, and also the studies weren't the analysis wasn't completed yet. There was a ten there was a trend towards improved uh, survival with remdesivir. But, um, but with, if you conceivably put healthier patients on an antiviral like remdesivir, you might see a survival benefit. The trouble is these people are already very sick. They're already in the hospital. A lot of people uh, with COVID-19 develop what's called cytokine storm where they ha there are these proteins that are liberated from cells that can destroy uh, a person's own tissue, a person's own organs, and you have many, many complications going on at the same time. So maybe in very ill patients, very difficult to see a survival benefit. But if you're using it in healthier patients, you may in fact be able to see a survival benefit much more clearly. And why is it in, why if in viral infections... Um, do you like the idea of using cocktails? Why is it? Is there just generally no silver bullet? Is, 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 are these diseases and the way it affects our body complex that it requires a, a multidimensional treatment process? You know, you know, all viruses are different. Um, you know, so for hepatitis C, for example, we use a, a, a treatment cocktail. For HIV, we use a treatment cocktail. But for example, influenza, we basically use one single antiviral. Um, I think that it's still under study as to, uh, in terms of with developing new medications, developing new agents, what is going to be um, the course for optimized treatment. We still don't know that yet. But, in, but you know, when you're dealing with very sick people who are progressing very quickly, you want to shut down viral replication as quickly as possible before the disease cascades and becomes a full-blown problem. So the best way to attack the virus from two different vantage points, in my mind, at the same time, you'll probably shut down viral replication and conceivably prevent further damage to a person's organ systems more quickly and efficiently. Daniel, thank you. Uh, question for Scott. Um, 
one of the things that you've mentioned in some of your videos is that how we do work will change. Um, our relationship with home, office, travel, transit to work, etc. Um, but, you know, when we work at home, it's somehow it, it isn't as fun, and we, we miss the positive benefits of peer interaction. Um, in your world of how, when we do come out of this, how do we bring the joy back in work if we aren't all in the office together? I think you're going to see a lot of A-B work shifts where the B, if you will, or the time we spend in the office will be especially focused on culture building and some of that joy and some of that interaction uh, that some of the positive, I think there'll be an emphasis on the positive when we get together, if you will, that we'll have more team building activities. You're also going to see um, uh, the strong get stronger and that is organizations like um, big tech that's younger will have a greater advantage because they will be able to, I don't want to say more promiscuous with the workforce, but there's just a, this just poses a different level of threat for an older workforce versus a younger workforce, such that you're going to see more young people leave traditional firms at even a faster clip just as everyone's talking about furloughs and layoffs, Google, Facebook, and Amazon are hiring like crazy. And if you're a 28-year-old who's single, that Google cafeteria has never been more attractive. So I think, one, you're going to see a greater investment in team building and more joyous activity at work for when people are in the office. And two, you're going to see a further exodus from people from traditional firms to younger with much younger workforces in the capital to create places for young people to interact, to meet spouses, girlfriends, husbands, because uh, the majority of people are kind of the number one place outside of college that people establish relationships is at work. So unfortunately, I don't think it's, I don't think, I think it's only going to, it's only going to uh, supercharge or co-charge this uh, migration of financial and human capital to the most successful firms. Scott, we, uh, we had the president of Brown University uh, on the call last week, and I asked her uh, the question, what will the university do when it finds out that one or some of its students decided to go have uh, a personal gathering off campus uh, where they weren't being, I'll call it, physical or social distancing? Um, I'm wondering, you know, so far our society, at least in some places, we've been very good about physical and social distancing, but as we open up, there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand to touch, to, uh, I'll call it, violate some of those social mo uh, mores. How do you think that's going to play out in, you know, in, the, in the real world with real kids who have been drinking? How is this going to play? So as long as there's alcohol and young people continue to exist, there will be a, an extreme lack of social distancing. That's just not going to, the notion that somehow those norms are going to change, I just don't, I don't see that happening. What I do see happening is that I don't believe, I'm supposed to, I have 170 kids registered for brand strategy or supposed to go up to town and sit elbow to elbow. I don't see that happening. So it, it, we're going to, I think we're going to have to operate under the assumption that off hours, young people will continue to take wonderful risks with their person and their time that, that maybe the older generations wouldn't take. And I think to assume that there's going to be 
um, a dramatic shift in culture or activity is, I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist. I just got an email from uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's listening to this call. I'd love to hear what he has to say. But I, I don't, I think the, the onus is going to be placed on the administration around what they can control uh, during campus hours. Because I think during off-campus hours, uh, we're going to continue to see a, a lack of distancing. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Um, Steve Fallock, um, you mentioned that we're going to get our temperatures taken uh, before we go into your doctor's office. Um, but a lot of patients are asymptomatic. What are you going to do to make sure that um, both you can stay safe and that your uh, your your office mates and the rest of the environment remains uh, COVID free? So we on the task force uh, for the Northeast region, and I'm the president of the New Jersey Society of Plastic Surgeons, have really been thinking about this. And there's an an expectation between the patient and the doctors of of what to expect. I think when you walk in the door, as I said before. Um, there's already going to be a screening uh, questionnaire that's gone on. Um, you know, have you had a temperature? Have you been exposed? All the standard questions that you might ask. Um, what I'm also finding right now is everyone uh, are looking at the infrared and distance thermometers. So there are some screening techniques. Uh, some of the people talked about them last week in terms of uh, concerts and stadiums about how an infrared uh, system will, will measure your temperature. Obviously, that's not going to work for a small office. And most plastic surgeons and most surgical subspecialties are small offices. So we're really going to have to uh, change uh, the way we, we approach. Um, you know, you can buy these infrared thermometers. You can't buy them on Amazon anymore. I actually bought them at Home Depot. Uh, where you can be about six feet away and uh, get a, a patient's uh, temperature. Um, what we've been discussing is that, at least in the beauty industry, we're going to be walk, working longer hours. We're going to be starting earlier. We're going to be running later. We may have Saturday and Sunday hours really to accommodate the um, all the patients that would like their beauty treatments. Um, in terms of testing, you know, when I started listening to these calls, um, I was very enthusiastic about antibody testing. Um, I'm less so because from a business standpoint, that's not going to change the way we do our business. If anybody is, uh, has been exposed to the antibody, whether again, uh, actually I should say specifically for the staff, it's not going to change anything. Every member of the staff is going to have to wear a mask and appropriate PPE testing. So I think the expectation among patients is they want to make sure that they're as protected as we are. Um, so we've really been stressing antigen testing as what's most important. And you and I had discussed before, but I, I think it's important that you know a, a couple of things. There are a lot of scams that are going on right now about antigen testing. Um, I get hundreds of emails every day either about gowns, masks, or, or tests. And what I'm hearing is that some of these testing centers, obviously not Quest or LabCorp, but some of these smaller testing centers that have popped up are basically getting the test and then running every single viral test possible. So 
you thought you were being billed for the COVID-19 tests. You're now being billed for four or five other viral tests. They're all out of network um, and patients are being stuck with large bills um, that they didn't expect. So, um, you know, we're certainly, I think as plastic surgeons, what's most important and what we need to do is stress the safety of our field. I mean, the cosmetic surgery and the beauty industry is a little bit of the Wild West. There are nurse practitioners, dermatologists, um, facial plastic surgeons. There's a bunch of people doing that. And it's our feeling um, in the leadership positions of plastic surgery that uh, we need to stress safety, that we're looking after the patient, and that's really what's most important. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Angela, we, you, we briefly touched on the question about whether or not a strong psychological makeup can improve your life expectancy if you catch the virus. Um, and I guess I have a two-part question. One is, um, do you believe that if you have the will to live, um, that it can make a difference in this sort of, uh, when, you're, when your body is being attacked by the virus? Um, and then the second part would be, you know, in your book, Grit, you talk about that first you have to be interested in doing something, and then you have to be willing to practice in the face of pain. And those that can, fact, uh, can go through the pain um, will persevere, and that's predictive. Um, so I guess, do we know, should it, you know, should the doctor know in advance, this is the kind of guy who can make it through because he's got that will to live. And I've seen, he's got this perseverance aspect to him. Um, or do you think that this, this virus will just will kill at random? Uh, you know, anecdotally, of course, physicians say that when a patient really has the will to live or conversely, when a patient really lacks the will to live, that that influences the outcome, you know, uh, separate from the physiology, et cetera, um, that's anecdotal. There's also some, you know, more systematic evidence that, for example, when people are grieving, they're bereaved and they're, you know, recently widowed, uh, that, that there's actually like, you know, it's not, it's not just um, anecdotal, but it's statistically true that, you know, people in that state are, are likely to die earlier, faster. Um, but here's the answer, Larry. I mean, uh, when you look at these, um, you know, research studies that say like conscientious people or optimistic people live longer, it's not uh, always and maybe even not largely a direct physical thing. They might be behaving in different ways, taking care of themselves um, better, et cetera. And that, you know, doesn't seem to apply in the situation where somebody is, you know, about to be on the ventilator in the hospital, right? That's not a lifestyle um, question. Um, so my guess is that there probably is some element here that might be, you know, like immune function, but, but I think a lot of the benefits of your psychological makeup are things that you do over extended periods of time to, to live a kind of life uh, that leaves you better off physically. In a completely different angle, um, Andrew, we're uh, a number of us on the call are parents, um, we may have high schoolers or college kids or, you know, or younger children. And there was an institution called school, which used to uh, encourage a certain behavior to, to learn. And that institutional setting has collapsed. Um, as a parent, given what you've learned with grit, what can we do to kind of overlay this new institutional online learning to make sure that the kids actually learn something? Yeah, I'll give two recommendations and I won't waste time, you know, just commiserating with parents who have their kids at home. I think there are two um, 
uh, opportunities in this uh, current um, situation. One is, you know, kids are actually, I've noticed with my own 18 and 17 year old that they are um, uh, now exploring their personal interests in ways that they weren't doing three months ago because they have more time and more flexibility. So, you know, my 18 year old started drawing a lot and she remembered and was surprised by by how much she likes art. And, um, you know, three months ago, she just had her head down and was like, you know, plowing through uh, reviews for her AP exams. So one opportunity here is to observe your kid, which gosh, now you have 24 seven to do that um, and notice the things that they're interested in because people who become world-class at what they do are deeply curious and deeply personally interested in, in what those things are. Uh, and the second opportunity is that this is a, an opportunity for your kids to develop self-regulation. So in the absence of structure and the absence of a bell schedule and your teacher just like handing you the worksheet and you just kind of going along and doing everything that is given to you in a very structured way, you now have to do a lot of that structuring uh, and self-regulation and discipline yourself. And that's been extremely hard for a lot of kids, but also I think an opportunity to really get better at that because like that's life, right? And, and in fact, some of that is why um, kids struggle when they transition from high school to college. So we take advantage of the early forced training in, in self-regulation. Thanks. Madeline, two questions for you. Um, the first one is, you mentioned that revenues from tourists are going to be down and we're not going to have many blockbusters or any blockbusters. Um, that's obviously going to be a major damper on revenues. How are you going to adjust um, your budget? How are you going to adjust expenses? How are you going to think about the museum as a business? Well, I'll, I'll give you one, uh, I think, very, very interesting example in the spirit of necessity being the mother of invention. Um, the National Association of Art Museum Directors, or AAMD, of which I'm a board member and former president, has, under COVID, approved significant temporary measures for the next 24 months that allow museums to use funds from the deaccession or sale of works of art that are normally restricted for the acquisition or purchase of artworks, these funds can now be used for the next 24 months for pressing collection care needs like storage and conservation that relieve operations. Uh, this is a big move for the association, which is the moral arbiter for our sector. Uh, in the past, a struggling museum that would sell off a work of art from its collection for operating dollars would have been censured. So these resolutions are meant to help during this crisis. Um, they are not meant to incentivize <laughs> museums to sell artworks from collections, but this will test the good judgment of staffs and boards going forward. Next question. You mentioned that you're going to have a different audience uh, than normal. Instead of having visitors from overseas, you're going to have a predominantly Chicago-based or Chicago MSA suburban-based audience, um, and that's going to change your content. It's going to change the way you present. Uh, what does that mean? What what are what does that mean for content? What does that mean for presentation style? What are you What are you going to do differently? Um, right. Uh, actually, we're going to go even further. Um, when what we back to that question that we're asking ourselves. You know, how can we go from saving to serving? 
from saving the staff and our building to now serving the community. If we think about the most vulnerable populations uh, in Chicago and outside of Chicago that we, given our particular toolbox, are in the best position to serve, our answer is students and artists. Uh, students, uh, the Chicago public school system needs a lot of uh, a lot of help, uh, and artists we we spoke about. So we intend to grow our our offerings for um, for students and particularly middle and high school students because they, as Angela just mentioned, vis-a-vis her 18-year-olds, are super open to new ideas, new art, and so on. And then we are definitely going to hone in on not only presenting artwork, but catalyzing, commissioning, and helping to actually create artwork, which, which contemporary art museums like mine have done uh, since, you know, since their birth. But we're really going to focus and double down on that. Okay. Thank you, Madeline. And thanks to all our speakers. Um, it's 4 o'clock uh, Chicago time, 5 o'clock Eastern. Thank you so much. Um, and it was great. And we look forward to talking to all of you again next week. Bye-bye.